The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, please visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. Please be seated. Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3? Hebrews chapter 3. This morning, it's the classic case of your eyes being bigger than your stomach. That is, I chose a passage that's way too large for 15 minutes. Um, I was tracing Psalm 95 and its use in Hebrews, and here I am with a multiple verses not knowing what to do in 15 minutes. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to read four verses this morning, and we're going to try to hit all of them, basically covering from chapter 3, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 16, which is a whole section, a subsection of the larger sermon, which is covered by an inclusio here when you have the repetition of words, Jesus, high priest, heaven, and confession in chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. What we want to discuss this morning is the meat portion of that, chapter 3, verse 7, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 11, where he expounds upon Psalm 95. And he does so by pivoting around this particular phrase, as found in verse 7 and 8, where he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice... Do not harden your hearts. And then he picks that up again in verse 15 as he says, As it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And then he picks this up again in chapter 4, verse 7, when he says, Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, in the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, descend upon us that we may understand better your word as a result that we may desperately and with dependence come before you. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The author or the preacher of Hebrews is clearly concerned. He is concerned about the faithfulness and the perseverance of those believers to whom he writes. Perhaps their initial enthusiasm had waned. Perhaps the postponement of hope had them discouraged. Or perhaps the pressures from both within the church and outside the church have finally taken their toll. Whatever the cause, their faith was threatened and the author urges them to press on and not fall. In this encouragement, he turns to Psalm 95 as his illustration. When you turn to it, you realize that Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11, is cited and repeated in full in chapter 3, verses 7 through 11 of Hebrews. Although the first six verses of Psalm 95 is not cited, it's hard to believe that the author did not intend the whole psalm to be understood together. For the psalmist begins by simply exalting us and exhorting us to praise God. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Why should we praise him? 
Why ought we come before God and worship? He tells us in verses 3 through 5 that the first motive of our worship and praise is the creation of God. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, he says. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. It's not just about his creation, however. He reminds us that creation, along with his redemption, are motives for our praise. For in verses 6 through 7, he says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. That analogy of us being sheep and him being the shepherd is a classic analogy found throughout the Old Testament, including Psalm 78:52, where our redemption is explained. But he brought his people out like a flock. He led them like sheep through the desert after taking them out of their slavery and bondage. He not only created the Israelites, he also redeemed them, recreating them into a nation, and they have become his people. Thus his creation and his redemption become the motivation for our praise. God is worthy of praise and worship because he created us and redeemed us. But the Israelites fail. In fact, in the middle of verse 7, there's a turn. Turn not only in terms of content, but also tone. Here, this exaltation turns to this state of crisis where he reminds us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my oath, they shall not enter my rest. A bit of a discouraging end to the psalm, I would imagine. But here, the Hebrews author turns to Psalm 95 using those very words found in verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 95 as the basis for his encouragement to the Christians to whom he writes. For Psalm 95 serves as a warning and a promise to those Christians who are there. On the one hand, it's a warning for them to be faithful. It is clear from the author's application of Psalm 95 here that he believed that the current generation of Christians in the first century were in a danger similar to the Israelites, a falling prey to the unbelieving and rebellious hearts that characterized the Israelites in the wilderness. One thing we ought to note here is the interesting change by the author of the Psalm in 90, Psalm 95. Instead of explicitly naming Meribah and Massa, the two places where the Israelites rebelled against God, the author of Hebrews, following the Septuagint, translates the names as rebellion and testing. Don't be like your forefathers who were in rebellion and testing God in what they did. The net effect is that the psalm is less closely tied to a particular place and event but characteristic of testing and rebellion of the wilderness Israelites that many in his time period were repeating yet once again. They were rebelling against God. They're testing God. 
And it's to these individuals whose actions seem identical to the Israelites in the wilderness. He says, today. He uses that word as a pivot because it transcends time. For the psalmist generation was urged not to follow the sins of the Israelites who wandered in the desert. Now the same admonition is spoken to the present generation of believers to whom the, uh, the author of Hebrews writes, to which Hebrews was addressed, and he simply says, do not be like them. For the teaching reserved for the Israelites during David's rule, the same teaching applies to us even now. For we are the same people, same sinful people who rebel against God, who teach God, and to us he teaches us. Simply, do not harden your heart. Just as the creation, redemption, bad response of the Israelites in the wilderness served as a warning to those people who lived during David's time, here the author of Hebrews applies the same warning against unbelief to the believers to whom he writes. Don't turn away. Do not abandon your faith. Do not give up. Be steadfast. Thus the warning he brings to us in verses 12 through 14 in chapter 3 when he says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil. And this description of evil is given to us as unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God the very God who has shown you much, that you may suffer from spiritual amnesia like the Israelites of old and not recall and remember what the good Lord has faithfully done for you. But he says, remember him. And remember him, trust in him in terms of his faithful leading. But he not only reminds us to take care, he reminds the believers to exhort one another, verse 13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Encouraging one another in a positive way, not only not hardening our hearts, but that we may be mutual encouragements to one another, reminding each other of the good Lord and the faithfulness that he has shown. Why is this even possible? He tells us in verse 14 of chapter 3, for he says, For we have come to share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. The word here refers to one who shares with someone else as an associate in an enterprise of undertaking. The same word used in Luke's five, Luke chapter 5 verse 7 to indicate the sharing of work that James and John had with Peter in terms of the fishing business. In the Second Temple Judaism, this word is commonly used to describe companions of the Messiah, ones who enter into heaven and have become residents of heaven. This word is now applied to the believers in the first century. Although the text does not elaborate further what it means that we are sharers in Christ, we can only guess from chapters 1 and 2 that the sharing is about sharing the joy that Christ brings in chapter 1, verse 9. It's about the sharing the inheritance that Christ has indeed received. And in fact, sharing with Christ the honor and glory attained through his death and resurrection so explicitly and so well described for us in chapter 2, verses 8 through 9. So here, to the Israelites... Uh, of old in the Psalm 95 uh, that Psalm 95 addressed, it was a warning for them not to fall away from the Lord. 
And to the believers in the first century to whom the author writes, it was a warning for them not to fall away. Indeed, the same thing is true for us even now. As beneficiaries and recipients, as individuals who are in Christ and who share in Christ, the encouragement for us is the same. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He says, take courage and be steadfast, for all of us have entered into a relation and union with Christ Jesus our Lord. But it's not just about a warning, is it? It's not just about warning to those individuals who are frequently sinning and rebelling against God. As much as there is a disincentive, there is also an incentive. This seems to work well for my children as well. My, my boy, everyone in my Greek class expects me to talk about my children at some point, so here it is. My boy, who's three, started soccer recently. He's been wanting to play soccer for years, in fact, all of his life. And, and as a three-year-old, he now began for the first time. He was very excited. In fact, the first game, he was all ready to go. For three or four hours before the game time, he really wanted to go. But when he got there, he realized all the kids on his team were older than him. They're four-year-olds, bigger, faster. They actually know how to kick and dribble the ball. And so he got scared, so he didn't want to play. So he actually sat out most of the first game. Right before the second game, now as a bleacher parent and a soccer dad, I wanted to make sure that my son would play. So I took him aside and had a a chat with him, who barely understands any language that I use. I told him two things. If you don't play, you're in trouble. I'm going to take away your toy. If you do play, I will give you this toy. And we had this toy that we hadn't given to him. He saw it. If you do play, I would give it to you. He was so happy. I'm not saying this is the way you should raise your children. (laughs) So this is not a lesson about child rearing. But at least for me, as a dad, I wanted him to run hard. Oh boy, did he play. He worked so hard. It was the goal. I don't think it was the fear of punishment. It was the goal of getting that handy manny toolbox. He ran hard. He gave me thumbs up every time he gave me a chance. He, he got a chance, and he hit, kicked the ball as hard as he can. It was a joy watching him. Now, all that to say, if it works for a three-year-old, it seems to work for us as well. The disincentive is... If you don't stay steadfast, you will not enter my rest as the Israelites have faced. But the incentive is, remember the rest. What they did not receive is reserved for you. This is why why in chapter 3, verse 19, he says, So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, chapter 4, verse 1 begins, While the promise of entering his rest still stands. Verse 9 picks up that theme again when he says, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. But did not the Israelites enter the land of Canaan is the question we can ask. After all, Joshua 21.44 says, And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Recognizing what seems to be a discrepancy reminds us that Canaan cannot be equated with the final rest of God. 
Because of their unbelief, the Israelites did not benefit from the promise. Because of their rebellion, God promised that they shall not enter my rest. The true rest that God promised had God at the center, but Canaan was not that. Perhaps reflecting on the rest described in Joshua, he further states, For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, chapter 4, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The land of Canaan was rest, but it was merely a temporary rest and looks forward to the final, future, eternal rest of God. Dr. Fesco spoke eloquently of the glory days to these believers who thought that perhaps the old way was better. He reminds them. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Moses was good, but Christ is better. In, in chapters uh, following from it, Joshua was good, but Christ is better. Land of Canaan was nice and good, but God's resting place is even better, he reminds them. He's showing the believers who are struggling and weary not only a disincentive in abandoning God, but an incentive to be steadfast. For there is a home that's been reserved for us, a resting place where God is at the center, and he's reminding us that we ought to be homesick for that home that God has prepared, not with human hands, where he sits on the throne. Before, when he uttered these words today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, was once a warning But now that's a promise. Because God's promise of rest made from the time of creation still stands. Israelites did not fulfill it. The promise cannot be broken or repealed. And although the exodus did not uh, provide the results that they desired, it still remains open for those who believe in Christ Jesus our Lord. This rest awaits us. And he lifts our countenance to look upon it. One last intriguing thing about this passage before we end, which is that all this time when he spoke of rest, he used the same Greek word in chapter 3, verse 11, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 3, uh, chapter 4, verse 3 twice, and then verse 5 and verse 10 and verse 11. Eight times he used the same Greek word. However, in verse 9 when he says, so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, he changes the word. The only time he uses the word sabbatismos, variously translated in the ESV and NIV as Sabbath rest, or King James Version as simply rest, and my favorite New Living Translation, a special rest. If the author intended simply to indicate a resting place as he did previously, the former word would have been sufficient. His change seems to imply that the new word conveys a nuance. Then what nuance does this convey? Well, this term, sabbatismos, does not refer to the Sabbath day, per se, but to the Sabbath observance, or even more specific, Sabbath celebration, in contexts that have to do with both rest and festivity. It is not only a time of cessation of activity, but one in which rest and praise belong together. Whereas the previous word refers to a resting place where God is at the center, which itself is an important promise to us. Here, Sabbath celebration reminds us 
that this place of rest is also a party place. It's where rest and celebration go hand in hand. This is why Hebrews 12 reminds us, but you have come to Mount Zion, leading us to look forward, not backwards, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable innumerable angels in festal gatherings, he says, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. It is indeed a resting place where God is at the center, but a resting place full of celebration where Revelation 14 ends by simply saying, And I heard a voice from heaven write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Lord, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. A time of physical, spiritual rest before God who wipes away our tears, but not just rest, but a celebration of the salvation brought to us by God and his Son, the lamb who sits upon the throne. To the Christians who are tired and weary in the first century, the author of Hebrews reminds them of the promise of God and the rest he has secured for us. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest was the promise of Christ. He encourages the believers to see that this rest and this place where they are currently living is not their home, and their struggle, while real, are not permanent, but that an eternal home with God at its center, where celebration abounds, await those who are faithful and steadfast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this promise is ours as well. If this today meant something for the Israelites during David's rule, And if today is applied to those Christians in the first century to whom Hebrews author writes, today is even today in 2010. The promise made to the believers in the first century is our promise. The promise that those who are weary and tired, as many of us may be, come to the Lord and he will give you rest. And he will fill you with the hope of that promise that one day where he is, we will be. One day, the rest he promised will be our rest. One day, the celebration of him who saved us will be really the words of celebration on our lips. May that joy encourage us and challenge us as we study and prepare ourselves for kingdom's work. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for the reminder to the Christians in the first century, which have become reminders to us. Help us to be steadfast and faithful to you, for you have been faithful to us, and as a result, we have become sharers in Christ. Help us to lift up our countenance and see the hope that you have given to us in heaven above, that indeed our desire and great joy will be knowing that one day, because of Christ, we will sit with you, resting our hearts and our bodies, beholding your glory, and praising you forever and evermore. May that homesickness ever be before our eyes as we study and prepare ourselves for your work. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2010, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, 
A link to this document on our website is preferred.